out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the artist, singer and writer Gary Aswith, who I spoke to very recently. He was in Renegade Soundwave and also in a band in the late 70s with various people, including Marco Peroni and Dorothy Max Pryor. It was Rima Rima, who have now got a new film that has just come out. So do check that out and um, at least see the trailer, if nothing else. I'm not sure when it's going to be available. But this is the interview. So after, I was going to say several minutes, but we had about a 20-minute chat about stuff, which gets edited out. Then we start the interview, and after five minutes, the quality, there was a little bit of an issue on the line. So we had to... uh, take it to the mobile indeed we did so um yes it does start then it stops then it starts again but it's quality chat and you will love it so anyway after um yes after all that chatting and stuff we get down to that uh, exciting subject that was the early formative years gary we want to know everything i think i might have been on the same boat as you with david bowie and the glam rock movement i loved um i loved a guy called jabrias oh yes a theatrical guy from from America yeah. who lived on a pyramid. Um, he was kind of I loved his first two albums. I, I bought the album in in Berwick Street Market. I had a job um, off just off of the Piccadilly, a yacht chandlers with a guy called Clifford Harris, who was in um, a group called the Models, right? Which were kind of like an early sort of step forward band. They did um, I think they did a release of Chelsea, a band called the Cortinas. And the models, and it was our own, um, the guy from the the, the drummer from uh, Police's brother. Oh yeah, the Copeland. One of the Copelands, yeah. Stewart. And um, I went to uh, sort of uh, had a job with him. We, there was him, me, and and Mick at school, and we were just kind of like Bowie freaks, and um, you know, and just uh, we anything kind of like sort of slightly interesting that we'd sort of had a sort of like a Bowie connection to it. We picked balls we liked and, you know, and um, anything that was slightly sort of um, off the beaten track, I guess, we, we, we'd, we'd um, give, give, give our ears to and, um, you know, plough through kind of like, you know, buckets of, and, and, and um, tons, of, um, tons of record shops and uh, exploring to see if there was anything interesting that sort of might catch our imagination. Yeah, but like you, I mean, I started with um, like T-Rex and um, Bowie, Roxy Music, and um, I got into Jabriath just by chance, really. Just so I fell in love with the um, with the cover. There was a gatefold um, sleeve to his first album. Yes, and it was um, just looked really fascinating, and um, I picked up on that. He was quite theatrical, and. Um, um, you know, just a sort of interesting guy, and he he died of AIDS. Um, I think in the sort of eighties. Um, yes. He was um, he was kind of uh, they put a lot of energy into sort of like trying to make him a star. He was on Elektra Records, and um, it sort of backfired a little bit. And I think at that time, because he was quite camp, and it was kind of um, and that sort of aspect of his um, persona kind of backfired a little bit on him. I think. But, um, which was unfortunate, but um, he was um, great pianist, great musician, and um, you know, and 
you know, if you liked Bowie at that particular time, you know, and um, discovering Jabriah was um, was sort of like a bonus ball, really, because I wasn't really expecting it. It was just something we used to go into these record shops um, in Berwick Street in um, Soho and um, find things like the New York Dolls and, and uh, you know, those, that was a big discovery, the New York Dolls and, and, and Jabriah were probably mm. the, the, the big discoveries from me. Yeah, you know, you trawl through thousands of records and... <clears throat> and um, you know, and just pick up on anything that looked look kind of interesting from the cover because, you know, you didn't have the internet or any of that sort of stuff. That was kind of like, seven, you know, probably sort of like mid-74, 75. Yes, that's true. Did you have, did you did you come from a musical family at all? Did, did... No, no, not at all. I just didn't know what to do with myself. And then when the punk rock thing um, broke and um, Cliff and Mick, who I, I was, there was a little sort of... Um, group of us at school and Terry Mile um, became the later became one of the Adam and the Ants but he was there was just really he was kind of a little bit of an outsider to our particular group yes kind of me Mick and and a guy called Clifford Harris who unfortunately um, died sort of um, in the mid 80s so um, he was in the they were Mick and Cliff were in the models together right and how did the how did the models come come into being um, yes, yeah, just coming to being basically. I think because Marco was um, Marco was also in in the in the models, and I think because Marco was um, sort of hanging around as sort of um, you know sex and uh, seditionary and uh, with Malcolm and uh, and Vivian, and um, you know it was um, sort of an inspirational time, and I think um, you know it was um, you know just go and learn a few chords and then form a band. And um, that, that's, I think, sort of what governized um, Cliff and Mick and, and Terry into, into forming the models. And then sort of, you know, the punk rock thing kind of fell a bit flat, sort of, um, you know, 77 maybe. I mean, it lasted sort of 76 and maybe just into 77 and it was kind of like... Uh, it had been sort of like taken over by the national press, really. Yes. You know, and it's sort of like, and um, it kind of lost its kind of, uh, lost its way a little bit. And um, Mick approached me to to, um, to form sort of Rima Rima, and then we went back and picked off Marco, and um, we advertised for a drummer who turned out to be a female drummer who was living with... Um, but a guy called Andy Warren at that time was the bass player with Adam and the Ants. Yes. So we'd, um, you know, we'd often sort of cross sort of paths with people like that. There's kind of um, little kind of groups of people that um, were in different sort of outfits and different groups and um, from different parts of London. So and, was um, so with Re- Rima Rima was this the because this kind of was it quite an art house project because there was because I, I this is with Dorothy isn't it Dorothy Max yeah 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 she's just written a book actually sixty nine exhibition road which um, I think it came out last week and she's doing the rounds with that which uh, which she's a really good writer so that's that would be worth reading and she she was um you know she was in sort of involved with um with Adam and um, prior to Adam and the Ants being Adam and the Ants and um, members of the monochrome set. Right. And again, that was a kind of like a little different, uh, a, a little, another group of people 
And um, she, we put an ad, I think it was in Melody Maker for, for a drummer, no hi-hats, <laughs> um, you know, like Mo Tucker and, you know, and, and you know, Mo Tucker and Robots or something, you know, something about sort of craft work maybe. There was sort of like the sort of person that was um, the influences that we had at the, that particular time. Yes. And she answered it and she was perfect, basically. Yeah. Perfect. Well, Amazing. Um, so were you, I mean, because I was, I was sort of was just too young for punk. So did you, were you just an incredibly young person in sort of already? I, yeah, it just arrived like, um, you know, perfect timing for me, to be honest with you. Yeah, I was just um, sort of 17 or something. So um, I was... Um, I was overjoyed with it and it could go out every night and there was always something happening. Somebody was playing somewhere and, uh, you know, it was, um, it was a great time. Yeah. A lot of energy around and you was of, of an age where you was, uh, you know, very energetic yourself. So it was, uh, it just felt perfect for me and having this, you know, having kind of like an introduction with people that I'd been to school with and they were, they were doing kind of like always playing with, um, you know, sort of the contemporaries of the time, like the Banshees and various other people, uh, that, um, you know, I'd, um, you know, go and watch them play at, at various places in, in London and sometimes outside of London. Uh, Heartbreakers, Johnny Thunders and the yes. Heartbreakers. And there was a club I used to go to quite frequently called the Speakeasy, where people would just, you know, mostly Johnny Thunders, actually. He'd have... Um, girls from Snatch and maybe Sid Vicious would, would, would turn up and play bass and, you know, and, uh, you know, various other sort of people from different outfits would just, uh, would yes. just, would just um, you know, it was kind of um, do it on, you know, do it. I, I, I doubt that they rehearsed for it. They were just kind of like, you know, it was all done up the cup kind of thing. But, Did you, but at, at that stage with Rima Rima, you were, you, yes. were you in the models or did you? No, I wasn't. No, I wasn't. I was just friends with, um, I was friends with Mick and Cliff. And as I said, I, I'd, I'd, I'd had this Saturday job at this yacht chandelers in Great um, 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 Albemarle Street. Right. Which was on Piccadilly. And um, we just used to we used to have quite a lot of money for 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 our because um, it was a Saturday job we were still at school, and that's when sort of and we both liked Bowie, and anything affiliated with Bowie and Roxy and yes. um, just we were sort of um, just um, you know in the in the West End and we always had sort of um, there was you know loads of record shops available to to, to plow through to see if there was anything going on that we didn't know about. Yes, and. Um, then sort of like the punk thing happened. They they went to they went to college afterwards because they were kind of like, um, you know, they were quite serious about their art. And I, I kind of I wasn't very good at art to be honest with you. <laughs> and I didn't. I wanted to get out and make some 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 cash. And um, my father worked at Covent Garden Market, right? As a porter, and he had a couple of um, businesses of his own. So I, there was always an opportunity for me, and I was I was doing that as well. I'd go up to to, to Covent Garden, even when it was the old Covent Garden, and um, you know on the busy nights. And I used to sort of make a nice few quid, and we just had like card schools and on the quiet nights. And uh, I used to go wandering around the kind of um, the streets of London if I had an opportunity during the um, you know the real early hours of the morning, like two, three, four o'clock. Mm -hmm. And uh, gone on a sort of like a discovery, sort of just discovering the streets of London at that time, because they were always kind of different from uh, you know the people that uh, 
were around at those hours were a different crowd to the ones that were around during the uh, you know during the early mornings and well quiet yes and it and when, I was going to say about Rima Rima. I mean, because yeah. it had it had Marco, who became this amazing guitarist and, and songwriter with Adam. Was he already something quite special? You know. Oh when... yeah. Oh, definitely. Yeah, he was. Um, I don't know if it's gifted. I mean, it's just he he just did this thing with controlled feedback. And what with what 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 was different about what he did with Rima Rima was it, he kind of experimented with his own style and. Um, I, I think I had a little conversation with um, Kevin Mooney, who was also in, 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 in that group, you know, the, uh, you know, the Kings of the World Frontier sort of um, lineup. Yeah. And he, 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 he did his first group with, um, with Rima Rima, with a group called the European Cowards. He later went on to, to join up with Marco and Adam to, to, to you know, form the, um, you know, the, the commercial aspect of Adam and the Ants. And he, he, he so he was, a person that played in Adam and the Ants, and he'd also seen Rima Rima play on a, on a couple of occasions, one of them being our first gig and his first gig at Toya Wilcox's place in Battersea called Mayhem. Uh, sometimes it was called the Nagasaki Ballroom. Right. He's, he, from his observation, and he's like a good friend of mine, and he's, he, he, he was um, you know, a man about town, and he said the best thing he ever did was with, with, with Rima Rima because you guys sort of pushed him in sort of places that he... He felt may have felt a bit, a little bit uncomfortable about going. So he was doing sort of, um, he was just going to places. I think we all were. We were experimenting, I guess, on the back of the sort of punk rock thing. It was, um, you know, it wasn't sort of, um, it wasn't regimented to, to, to like a sort of, you know, um, a sort of natural, strong um, song structure. Yes, and Rima Rima's become. It has just had a feel, a documentary, hasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, that was um, a couple of weeks back. Yeah, the premiere was in London, and um, I think that's going to be showing up the next. Because um, what we've, what we've, I'm now in a Rima Rima tribute band. Excellent. And we, yeah, what we said we'd do is we will, um, two of us, me and Mick, are going to go to Turin and um, with a couple of local um, musicians um, from a group called Laughton, which I think are Turin based, and um, we're going to. Sort of play some sort of um, some versions of uh, the original Rima Rima EP prior to the Italian premiere of the documentary. God, so that's that's good. So when did when did the, when? Sorry, go on. Because I was going to say this is over. You know, the band was over forty one, forty two years ago. So suddenly yeah. having somebody say, "Look, I want to make a a documentary about this yeah. this incredibly short lived but sort of." interesting yeah. group was that slightly surprising thinking yeah. I, yeah i mean it's sort of um i initially i was really i just and uh, i sort of uh, i don't think any of us took it very seriously to begin with and then it sort of started you know the guy that was doing the the, the guy that was making the documentary marco porcia he was kind of you know he'd sort of like send me sort of um emails and say i'm in new york um, speaking to Jim Thurwell and, and then he sort of like he'd be somewhere else he was in Italy talking to a couple of the girls from the group Malaria and he'd be kind of like he was like sort of um, Alan Wicker on steroids you know he'd be <laughs> starting, starting from different places uh, you know on, on the planet from, from you know it seems it seems you know it seemed like he had a busy schedule on, you know on, 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 
you know, with regards to airports and that, he was um, he was out there. And then the sort of I got shown some rushes. I mean, this it started just as just before the sort of pandemic kicked in, and then sadly he lost his dad during the um, from COVID. Right. And that kind of like um, he's 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 quite an interesting character because he's um, he's half Italian, half American, and he lives in Toronto. And um, his mum and dad, I think, have been together since they were kids. And his mum, obviously, has not known sort of like adulthood without without her husband. Yes. And, um, and being Italian as well is kind of like um, obviously they're they're very family orientated. So that was a bit of a, a a kickback for him. And he's obviously he's trying to deal with his mother's grief as well as his own. So um, that kind of broke it up a little bit. But then. You know, he just ploughed it. He did. Then he got back on, you know, back on the planes and uh, <laughs> and, and finished it off. This is amazing. And, um, it is amazing. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of it, is, it was. You know, it's an obscure group, and I'm thinking like, but um, what he did was he 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 had the record. It was an early purchase of of his when he was like a super young guy, and then what happened in 2019 is I put a collection of kind of demos together for a release of, of, of Rima Rima through, through the original record label, which was 4AD. And he sort of, um, he got to, to, he got sort of made aware of this release. And it kind of like, it, it sort of, um, I guess it kicked in and he just, it, it inspired him to, 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 to make, um, you know, to, to make contact with us and, um, and to, and to, and to get the project off, you know, off and running. And he'd previously done a thing about the swans, documentary about the swans, but I, I really don't know very much about them. So No, they were sort of but, a bit more... I did, yeah, but I did, I did go to see the, the documentary when it got shown in, in London, and I, I was quite impressed with his, um, you know, how he put it together. It was, you know, it was um, very professional what he's done with it. And he's done a very good job with Rima Rima too, to be honest with you. Fantastic. So you're you're pleased with the the final look and sound of it? Yeah, as much as I could be. I mean, I would have done sort of it slightly different and maybe gone on to do you know you know you know I had a different sort of view on it. But um, yes, some of the interviews are kind of like wow. It just um, it was, it was quite sort of strange. It was quite emotional to be honest with you. I would imagine. I mean, it's it's it is forty two years ago. So obviously. Yeah. And it's not like I see, you know, you see, you're I'm in permanent contact with the members. I mean, we are we are a little bit like a sort of bit of an old family, but um, it's just it was just it's like wow, this is this this surreal. <laughs> and it was like because I I made a point of not not viewing the documentary prior to the the premiere because I just wanted to sort of experience it for the first time, like everybody else predominantly, but a couple of couple of people in the group that had had. had seen it previously i'd watched it on on their computers i guess yes and i was just kind of like wow it's um it's, it's very strange very very strange to sort of um to reflect on it and just kind of um you know seeing sort of um seeing other people do the same thing and sort of people talking about it and people that you don't know but you you know you might there was a guy from cabaret voltaire and we did a gig with i can remember doing a gig with cabaret voltaire in 79 but I'd never spoken to any other people from Cabaret Voltaire. And um, so, you know, and sort of, um, it was nice to hear some of the flattering comments people made about it and just um, 
about this particular record that we made in in, in 1979 that was released in 1980. Yes. Well, I guess with with all these things, I I would imagine that it had quite an impact because there probably wasn't that much like that happening at um, that precise moment. No, I think, um, you know, that sort of post-punk thing was kind of, um, you know, when people think of post-punk, they think of Joy Division, I think. I mean, that's instantly who, who, where my thoughts would go, which was obviously a Manchester-based thing. But I think what, because this was a very early 4AD record, I think it was the first 4AD record. They had the Axis label with four releases on it, and then um, the fifth release, which was actually on the 4AD, because there was two Axis labels, apparently. So they sort of withdrew that title, and then they became 4AD. And I think the, the Rima Rima record was the was the first release for 4AD. And if you think about the 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 place that you know the, the, the music that's been released on 4AD since that that fateful day, then you know it's um, become a very well respected label. Yes. And what I mean, did the band? Why did the band finish in the end? Well, Marco, Marco was um, Marco left basically. Marco left, and um, he eventually he got um, you know tied into the to the Adam and the Ants. But he was he worked did some work with John Leckie, I think, before he joined Adam and the Ants. I can't remember the name of the group, but um, so that was the reason we we uh, we were actually it was a posthumous release. We didn't exist when the actual record came out as a, as a group. It was just we made some recordings for, for Charisma, I think it was, and uh, there was uh, there was a line, a blasphemous line on it, and um, they declined to sort of um, to, to release it. So so we got control of the recordings that we made for them, and um, apparently it was me that that, that um, made contact with. Um, Four AD started with a guy called Peter Kent and Ivo, but Peter Kent used to actually come and see Rima Rima play live. I don't think um, Ivo ever did, yes. and um, I had contact with him and um, sort of initiated a kind of like a meeting to see if they were interested in playing playing the um, the tracks that we the demos that we'd made. Yes, and um, Ivo was over the moon about it basically so peter already was that already bought into it and he kind of um wanted to sort of confirm that um that ivo was interested and uh, we went to their the then office which was in hogarth road which is um just off of um earl's court mm, and, um, and, um, and the rest is history that is isn't it but we haven't even got into the 80s actually because um you oh, know <laughs> The record. This is. It did get released in the eighties. I think it got released in nineteen April, maybe nineteen eighty. Right. It was recorded in seventy nine. Yes. And it was actually released in 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 nineteen eighty. So it is kind of like just 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 into the eighties. Just gone. Early. Just in there. It just got in there. Yeah. But then, sort of as as the eighties progressed, obviously there was that kind of new wave sound, and there was also goth. Goth was kind of happening. Psychobilly, the new Paisley yeah. was happening. Um, it was a few years before kind of indie pop really kicked in. What did you then, how did you navigate the next bit of your kind of musical journey into the 80s? I did a thing called Mass, which which was also on 4AD, which basically was Rima Rima without Marco. I played guitar, and it was quite sort of, that, that was quite sort of... Um, you know, dark wave, maybe they call it, don't they? They might kind do. Of, <laughs> slightly, 
theatrical kind of vibe to it. It was quite dark, quite serious. And then I kind of, I personally, I, I, um, I'd met a girl that was in malaria I'd, um, backstage when they were supporting a birthday party. And I kind of was kind of going in and out of um, Berlin quite a lot. This would have been about sort of maybe 80, 82, 83. And then I sort of, um, when did the um, Belgrano go down? Can you remember that one? That I must have been the... about 81, I guess, because the Falkland right. Wall, 81, 82, I guess. Right. That's why I was thinking it was 82, because I remember having, because I was, I was staying in Berlin and we had this conflict with, um, with the Falklands. And I was sort of like, um, you know, I was living sort of hand to mouth. And um, the girl I was going out with, she was play She was working at a place called the Metropole, which was an old sort of 30s, if I'm not mistaken, sort of cinema complex. Yes. Beautiful building. And I was, I'd phone up my dad and say, you know, I'm sort of out of cash again, Dad. You know, can you do a transfer for me? And what's the situation with, 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 the, with the Argentinians? How are we getting on? Because I, I wasn't picking up any kind of, like, information in Berlin. And I remember him turning around and said, oh, it's, um, it's, um, it's looking a little bit more serious than our last kind of the, um, conversation. And uh, they've sunk the Belgrano. And I'm like, What's that? Where is the Belgrano? It's, it's like a battleship, I think. And uh, it's, um, it's, it's, it's all over the papers today. And uh, I was, wor- I was wor- worried that maybe they'd bring, bring back conscription, you know? I was thinking, mm-hmm. oh, I don't fancy that going out to the Falklands. But- you know, with me, me backpack and uh, you know, me armor light rifle. So, uh, so I was trying to avoid that and um, on the scrounge to get some some finances together to, to to make sure I could stay in Berlin for another couple of months or whatever. Well, yes, because I because because Berlin was quite an interesting place in that period because because people in Germany had to do some. Subscription, not subscription. They had to do national service, didn't they? But you could get away with it, or I'm you could sure. you could avoid you you could avoid it if you lived in Berlin. So anybody who that's, was yeah, that's exactly where I was going because Berlin. I mean, a, a, a lot of these people that were in Berlin at this particular time, they weren't Berliners. I think I think Blixer from Neubauten was a Berliner, but all the girls from malaria i don't think i don't think any of them or maybe they were i know bettina wasn't who i was having a relationship with with she she was from from the hanover area i think and um so it was kind of like a strange little melting pot and obviously it was like an island basically in east germany yes and to go on these transit roads um, um to, to through to, through um east germany to to get to, to berlin unless you flew in and um, obviously the wall was up at that time, but um, it was uh, it was it was really interesting. I mean, just it was sort of, and there was so much going on, and there was a lot of energy there, and they sort of like used to have these kind of like fog horns, and and it was all sort of, sort of murky everything, and it was sort of like it was just, and, and the people were very hospitable. You think because it wasn't that long after the war, really, if you sort of think about it, and. Uh, and the people were, you know, everyone was, um, you know, it was uh, there was some good vibes going on. Well, and absolutely. Just, you know, and um, I had a really good time. I was um, really enjoying myself, and I was young still. And uh, it was, um, you know, there was there was um, because I kind of hooked up with um, Bettina. I had kind of like I used to go to the jungle, a club called Dash Jungle, which Bowie lately a reference in one of his songs. Um, 
and um, Rizico, a place called the Rizico, which was kind of like a sort of spark out kind of punks used to hang about there. And uh, I used to have to sort of pretty navigate past that place pretty much every day because it was on the on the way to this sort of Imbis station that I used to visit to get my um, chips. I used to go and get, get some chips and like a splosh of mayonnaise I used to put on it. Excellent. It was just next to the Rizico sort of club. It was just sort of like on the next block from the Rizico. And uh, I always used to see all the sort of like spark out punks kind of like um, vomiting on it over each other outside the club. And if you, and I actually played there later on with... with um, with Bettina and Gudrun, and uh, I did this one-off record there called Mutabo, and um, we went and sort of played there, just a one-off gig, I think. That was, I think that was the only time we played, actually. Excellent. God, that's great. I think I went to the, is it the Metropole, to see a few yeah. bands, because that, that was yeah, where all the... Yeah, it was kind of like, um, it was kind of like a bar area downstairs, but upstairs they had like a discotheque, which uh, it was kind of, kind of like... Um, they were both sort of, sort of slightly incongruous to each other because the upstairs was kind of like a bit sort of Studio 54 vibe going on, and then, and then it was and downstairs the bar area was kind of like more of a sort of sort of traditional kind of um, sort of old old style Berlin bar yes. with lots of space. Well, this yeah, yeah, because. I was going to say, because one of the strange things about that time, because there was a load of people from Norwich who got a sort of a van and went and went to Berlin to live, and they all sort of got jobs on the American air bases, and most of them were there for about five years. And I, so, yeah, so a good friend of mine, his brother lived there, and he worked in the American embassy, and I think he's still there, and he did quite well, but everyone else slowly came back, but they all just got these jobs on American air bases. I remember going to a gig in Berlin, and, and I was like... By the way, the, Amer- the the Germans won't the the crowd won't do anything until the encore, and then they'll start jumping up and down. And I thought it's a bit oh. strange, but it was true. It was weird. Right? Okay. Oh, I don't remember that, but uh, <laughs> I'm, not sure if I, I'm not sure if I even got an encore to be honest with you. But it was, um, yeah, it was a kind of it was a very tight knit scene, but um, everyone seemed um, sort of galvanised by, by, you know, by, by, by the sort of, like, the, the, the vibe of being in Berlin. So it was almost kind of, um, it was almost kind of like it was a, a, a joyful place to be in a kind of very subdued kind of um, environment. But uh, it was kind of, it was very, very, very strange, you know, and there's, there's always something going on. And, and some, you know, some someone was always inviting you out and it was... Um, it's, it seemed like it was like a hive of activity there, to be honest. It was fascinating. Well, it was interesting because, as, as I was told from you know, these people living there, they said it yeah. is brilliant because actually all the, all the bands will come to Berlin and they'll play in really small venues wherever, mm-hmm. however big they are in any other part of the world. And you'll yeah. get to see them, you know, up close. And it was like, oh, this is brilliant. I mean, mostly. I mean, they, they played in... But everyone would play Berlin, so... Yeah. They, they, well, the Metropole might have been, like, a, that was quite... A, that was a gig as well, wasn't it? I don't, I don't know if you saw a band there, but... Um, yeah. I had, I've got a later memory of being there when I was with um, Renegade Soundwave. And um, I think the Happy Mondays may have been playing at the Metropole. And um, there was talk about us going to see the happy going to going to to see the Happy Mondays play, but we never 
we never got with time just went past and we was doing something else and we, we never got to see the gig but um then we were sort of i can remember sort of we were sitting around somewhere and we were sort of like to maybe if we got there now it would be like even a better time because they're probably like the 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 wine would be flowing you mm. know it's like you know because the, the gig's probably finished but uh the guys are probably still around and they you know they're probably going to like renegade soundway why wouldn't they you know everyone likes renegade soundway so but um that it never happened but it was it was uh an evening that was sort of um that sort of went somewhere else, I guess. Yes. But then, I mean, as, as we as we got through the Falkland War and then the miners' strike and then Greenham Common, how was your kind of... When did you come back to the UK in the 80s? I, I sort of... Um, I, what I did was I kind of swapped... Berlin for, for New York for a while. For, for, I sort of like started to sort of investigate um, New New York and uh, only only New York for some reason. And um, when all the sort of graffiti thing and the kind of early um, hip hop scene was kind of flourishing, and um, that was kind of very interesting. So I, I I'm not very good with my years, but that's that was the sort of my next destination point which had been sort of like probably 84 or something like that and that's eventually where um where the sort of um where Rema, where renegade soundwave sort of started where me and carl would um would meet up and we got offered this loft space which was uh, he was going out with a girl from a group called Live Skull. Have you ever heard of them? No, Skull. No, they are quite obscure, but a lot of people do know them. And um, he was going out with this girl from Live Skull, and the drummer from Live Skull had this loft space in in New York, and that was kind of we went there, and there was a, like a drum kit and a bass kind of bass with a with, with a lamp and cabinet, and we went and had a jam, and that's apparently you know that's kind of. Really, where Renegade Soundwave started on that on that particular trip that we made um, to New York. And, yes. Uh, was that was that um, a, a studio as well, or was that just a sort of? Um... It was. It was. It was just a space that the guy was a drummer, and they probably used it themselves for rehearsing. It wasn't. Like, it wasn't really a studio space. It was just an opportunity to jam, I guess. And um, that's sort of basically what we did. It was just there was just him and me, and um, and I still got the cassette. And you know what? It doesn't. It's pretty good. It's quite <laughs> interesting. He's a fantastic drummer, Carl Bonnie. He really is. He's um, you know he's not recognised, but I, I would say he's um, you know he, he could grace any band. That guy. Yes. Amazing. And then, I mean, so at that stage, I, you know, from my sketchy memory and sort of... Very, yeah. I remember sort of listening to John Peel, and at this stage he started right. playing stuff from Public Enemy and LL yes. Cool J and, and those yes. kind of people. Did you... Yeah. Was that where you started to get ideas of the sound for Renegade Soundwave? Yeah, I mean, when we first started Renegade Soundwave, really, we were just kind of... Um, we were a bit sort of fresh punk, when we can then sort of like gradually we had to sort of then we sort of introduced kind of lin drums we sort of that was about as kind of electronic as we got at that particular time and then when the sampling thing started happening that that's you know and the sort of like the memory capacity at that time for a sampler was, was very small and then we kind of started expanding on the amount of samplers that we had and we realized that we could sort of throw pretty much anything into the mix but most of the kind of like there was a kind of uh 
maybe four or five songs that, that came through that just through um, just through you know like rehearsing like drums, bass, guitar, and vocals just through, just from um, just from 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 uh, you know from rehearsal studios. The where the, the crux of the song, the basis of, of our early structure of songs was was written. Yes. Of, um, and then we got eventually. Um, we got asked to visit um, Rhythm King. Carl had made an independent record, and um, Mark Moore, I think, was scouting for um, Rhythm King, and um, kind of introduced us to Rhythm King. And we went down to Rhythm King, and we did Cray Twins, and then Cocaine Six. And I think um, they were in a little bit of conflict with Rhythm King, and. They were in the they were in the mute building and uh, there was something going on sort of between the between I think it was Martin Heath and Daniel Miller and um, Daniel Miller said he, he didn't want Renegade Soundwave to leave the building without talking to him about potentially signing to Mute which is what we eventually went to do was and then we released um, Biting My Nails I think was our first release with with Mute Records. Yes, but you did a John Peel session quite yeah. soon, didn't you? Yeah, well, what happened was, is it was interesting. I, I had a girlfriend called Nikki Kapalas, and she was kind of managing us. And um, what would happen was she, she um, was a promoter, and um, she'd spend quite a considerable amount of time sort of like promoting new bands to John Peel and chopping up records. And what would happen? Because I think John John Peel, is, as your documentary showed, lived in the countryside somewhere. Was it Suffolk or Suffolk? Yeah, he was. He was just outside Stonemarket in Suffolk. Right. So, but what he would do at this particular time is he 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 sometimes stay at Nicky's Nicky's stop over rather than make all the, the journey back to, to his home. He'd stop over in, in London and stop with Nicky. And I think that's how the introduction came to us doing a, a John Peel session was his relationship, John Peel's relationship with Nikki Kapalis, who was doing our promotion at the time. And um, and that's how that's how I think we got the John Peel session, because she was probably, she'd probably, I can't remember when it was, you know, if, if we'd had a, I think we probably had a record out at that time. Yeah, we must have done for her to, to be promoting us. So it probably would have been Cray Twins and Cocaine Sex are somewhere in between. So. Yeah, well, this was, you did this in June 1987. So this was, an, yeah. so that was yeah. quite early on. And, and the, yeah. the tracks you did on that was Craig, the Craig Twins, Traitor, Hard, uh, How to Be Hard and Blue Eyed Boy. So um, that was yeah. it. And you did yeah. it with the producer Del Griffith, who, Griffin, yeah, who, the um, Mott the Hoople guy. The Mott the Hoople. How, what was that experience like for you? Well, I wasn't, it was, um, because you, you, you kind of, um, you get a very limited amount of time. And, um, you know, you've, you've never really got enough time. It was in Maida Vale. And, um, he was, um, he was, wasn't, he wasn't over friendly. And um, I don't, I'm not sure, you know, if he really liked what we were doing, maybe. And um, he wasn't very sort of understanding, but we've sort of got it. We got it, we, you know, we got the bare bones of four tracks down and uh, and it is what it is. I'm glad we've done it. You know, yes. And, uh, it's, um, you know, it gets, I think it got played recently. Somebody phoned me up and said, oh, you've sort of John Peel sessions on the radio. Um, yeah, well, I, I must admit, most people who do the John Peel session with dear old Dale 
always have a pretty bad time with him. They never. They... Yeah, right. I haven't spoken to anyone about it, but uh, one of my favourite memories of, of of John Peel sessions was they did a magazine session, and um, I thought it was fantastic. And I much prefer the John Peel sessions to the to the tracks that they did for the Peel sessions and and the tracks that they eventually did for Virgin on the album. Yes. And it was quite, when we was doing Rima Rima, I remember we had a meeting with Virgin and we went, I can't remember if it was just me and Marco, or me, Marco and Nick. And uh, we went to the offices there and um, we played them some sort of some tracks and um, and the guy, the guy kind of sort of said, hmm, it's a little bit too similar to magazine. I'm sure he said that, yeah. And uh, I was like, oh, really? Okay, right. That's not... And so, and you know, they 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 just signed, I think, magazine, and they they, they thought that we were um, of a similar ilk, and uh, and they 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 settled for 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 being, you know, um, representative for magazine, and um, didn't have the space for Rima Rima, which actually, in 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 reflection, I'm quite happy. Yes. It's out that way, to be honest with you, because. Um, I don't know. I'm, you know, not a great big fan of um, Virgin Records, to be honest. No, quite a lot of people. That was the death. You know, a lot yeah. of indie bands who were on on their you know label then got signed to Virgin, and generally it, it wasn't a great experience in the end. So. No, I had a friend that had a, had. I think he just did one single, and uh, you know they were kind of very expectant about sort of what to, what what would you know if you didn't if you didn't sort of crack away with the first single, and people you know wasn't sort of you know, um, given the airplay or uh, uh, got great press or what have you, then you were sort of like you went in the front door and you got sort of quickly escorted out the back door. But <laughs> he only did, you know, he only did, I think he only did, um, I think he did one record with them and he was scathing about them, to be honest with you. Yes. But you know somebody that worked at Virgin, a, a girl called Eileen, so Eileen Shembury. And uh, so I used to spend a little bit of time because they were just up the road from from the offices of um, of Mute for a while. They're in sort of like um, just further up the Harrow Road. So yes, but so so when during the eighties, I mean, I was a real indie kid, so I loved the Smiths. Yeah. So that was eighty three to eighty seven was a very exciting time. But then you had all those tracks that John Peel started playing. There was on a, one of those NME cassettes. There was a band called or an artist called. Steinsky, Steinsky, who had that a track called Steinsky, yeah, fantastic. Uh, the yeah. motorcade sped on, and then there yeah. was all these little bits and pieces, and there was another yeah. one like there was a there was one of these real sampled ones from an advert, like batteries not included. I even bought the twelve inch of that, but um, you know, there was all these kind of really strange kind of uh, yeah. I don't know, tracks that he started. And then he had the Chicago house sound that he brought out. You know, he started playing Frankie Knuckles and people like that. So, I mean, yeah. what was what was it like? Because obviously you caught that part of the the late 80s where um dance music and there was a guy called gerald as well so yeah very it, good yeah and then the orb appeared in 808 state so yeah. were, you, were you were you yes the beastie boys great band um did you so were you at this stage full-on with the renegade sound wave was this kind of your moment yeah i think um we were um yeah, I mean, as you said, there was there was a lot going on, and it was, um, you know, I think a lot of these groups suffered from not having kind of, sort of support. Really, I think I was quite fortunate originally to to find new records because um, 
you could um you know you had an opportunity to 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 progress and expand on 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 your creative kind of being i guess you know and um develop as a group which which doesn't really happen so much and um you know and there weren't that many labels that um gave you the opportunity to do that yes kind of fortunate i guess that um you know daniel miller really liked what we were doing I think he probably liked us, you know, like the idea of what we were doing then. I'm not sure if he did to reflect the same, say the same thing now. But he sold <laughs> the catalogue to, uh, to EMI, and then he bought it back because he think he had so many complaints from from the artist. And now my catalogues with BMG, and they're like, um, you know, they're like the Starbucks of music, in my opinion. <laughs> And I don't have any joy with them. And I had a meeting with them, and the guy didn't even know one of our songs. It's kind of like, now what are you doing with our catalogue? I mean, it's, it's shameful, really. But you know, that's where we've ended up, and uh, you know, we don't have a relationship with the record company. Okay. Now, are they a record company? I mean, they're just you know just buying people's catalogues. I mean, I think I, when I was up there, the one time I was up there, they just bought Blondie's catalogue. I mean, it's kind of like, I don't know, it's something morally untoward about the whole thing to be honest with you but um yes i think most most bands from the that 80s period is sort of looking to archive their work and somehow sort of get it back into their grips i suppose with um age and thinking actually i want i want something to really happen i think people don't want to think about well no it's people don't think about what happens when they get a bit old and pass away but but then they suddenly think actually i do want somebody to make sure it's kind of been properly archived and sorted and um, i mean at the moment there's been so many compilations and collections coming out it's been amazing but obviously you know you've got quite a project with your own bands and stuff like that so when you went to record sound clash which is the album that came out in 1990 this was recorded over quite a few years in the late 80s wasn't it yeah, I mean, what we did, we had some contractual problems and um, it was sort of canned for, um, I think it was well over a year while we tried to nail down the sort of, um, you know, the aspects of the contract that we didn't like and it was, you know, it was time consuming and it sort of, um, I think that killed the album in a lot of respects, to be honest with you, because it was very, um, you know, it was kind of like, it was, it was, made you know it, was, it, it sort of set everything back and um i think it was you know a bit of a stab in the heart the fact that it got um you know because at this point it was um you know we wanted to do the dub album and you know we had sort of a lot of, there was it just created a lot of sort of frustration i think and then carl kind of um left and that was kind of really the you know in a lot of ways in reflection for me in hindsight i guess it's uh was pretty much the death of renegade soundway um there was a lot of sort of um hell of a lot of energy in 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 the group and a lot of strong character so uh yes we sort of used to sort of um it was manageable but we didn't it was manageable between ourselves, but when we had sort of outside forces kind of um, sort of pinpricking it, it was uh, it kind of it, you know it started to um, eat, eat itself almost, you know. 
and I think that was the start of it with the, with with the, with the with the album just being sort of like you know we knew we'd done a great album and um, we just wanted it out there and uh, we were just reliant on um, you know the relationship between two sets of solicitors you know. God, that is death, isn't it? It is really, and um, it that just is... kind of went on and on and uh, and um, you're not sort of doing you can't do anything in between really you know what I mean there's sort of um, you're kind of stripped of your assets for a while, so um, you know it um, had a profound effect on the kind of psychology within the group, I think. And um, after that, we was kind of like playing catch up with ourselves and trying to, to um, you know, sort of like get onto the next step. Yes. And, and um, I think that was, um, yeah, it wasn't. It wasn't. Um, it was a very uncreative kind of period that, um, you know, but we had to argue our point with, with regards to the contractual kind of obligations that we didn't feel uh, were kind of, we wanted to sort of like as much control as we, as we could possibly get and we were quite adamant about that. So we just stuck, you know, stuck to our guns, but it, you know, it's, um, it was tough knowing that you've got a good album and it's kind of, um, it can't be released because of because of that. So God, know, that's, that is a drag. I mean, you're so to get it. You know, you do <laughs> just you get the in dub, you get sound clash, and then you get yeah. in sort of '94, you get another release, don't you? Is that a, yeah? Well, yeah, I think I think you know with regards. I think yeah, I think I think it's all you know. It goes back to this contractual thing, and then Carl left. And I don't think me and Danny really appreciated Carl enough. But that's easy to say now. But I just think that Carl kind of was the, you know, the sort of twisted genius that sort of held the thing together in a lot of ways. And, um, you know, we think the, the record company had expectations. And we were kind of like doing lots of different things. We were writing kind of pop tunes and experimenting and trying to sort of um, expose ourselves to as much kind of modern sort of technology as we could. And, you know, we were headstrong and, you know, and, you know, we're argumentative. We are quite argumentative, I guess, but it's because we kind of like, we had strong ideas and ideals about sort of what we wanted. And, um, yeah, that, that, that sort of created, you know, we, we sort of created a lot of our own problems, I would say. But, um, you know, that, um, there was a lot of kind of um, misplaced testosterone, you know. <laughs> and, um, sort, yes. You know, and, um, yeah, and the, the, the um, yeah, and the sort of, yeah, we were just falling apart. It was like a bad, you know, it was like a bad marriage at the end, to be honest with you. So, yes, was, you know, and um, but there's some great thing. It created some sort of there's some, you know, on the how you're doing albums. It's it's too, there's too much going on in my opinion. But there's some great things in that album. There's some great tracks. Blast them out's great. Upper Luba's great. Yes. The track Renegade Soundwave's great. The the the, the, um, the CD that with the, all the mixes on is mostly down to Danny. That's great, and the the left build remixes they're great. And um, 
It is interesting because yeah. you do, I mean, there are, I mean, without sounding like a terrible music fan, you know, the best of. Um, but the, the, the songs that are your best songs are amazing, aren't they? I mean, you know, from Cocaine um, Sex to Probably a Robbery. And I love Renegade Soundwave, the track. It's just yeah, awesome. Yeah, it's a great track, yeah. I really do. I think that's... Um, I'm done. It's, it's, it's a really great track. It's you know, it's, it's a it's a great video as well. To be honest with you, you know, kind of getting up to Marrakesh and filming that was a really great idea. And that was Danny's idea. Some, I think he watched Casablanca or, a couple, or something a couple of weeks later, yes. and he was adamant about it. You know, we weren't going anywhere else. We was going to Marrakesh. I was kind of like, really okay. okay <laughs> I'll back you up on that. Yeah. I, 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 Seems like a good idea to me. Danny's Danny's nailed this one down, so yeah, I'm I'm uh, nice. I'll, I'll, I'll travel over with him. Yeah. And, well, he um, he might have been a Crosby, Stills and Nash fan and just wanted to go to Marrakesh on a hippie trail. Right, so. No, I don't think he is actually. No. Uh, he was, yeah, no, I don't. Uh, no, he's, uh, he's he's not from that sort of generation, Danny. But uh, he does love his music. But he's, and he's uh, you know he knows he's when he gets. When he's set on something, God forbid anyone that tries to take him off of his natural path there, because you, you're going to do a lot of, um, you know, head banging on the way. Because he's, um, he's very, very determined that chap, and he just had he just Marrakesh was like, whoa, okay, right, that's all for you. I've heard it's in Morocco, isn't it? Excellent. So with the, so when the band. Did it have a moment where you all sat down or not, you know, did, was there a definite moment where it was like this, to quote Jim Morrison, the end? I think what happened was, I think, you know, just, I think we just, um, we exploded just one time too many, you know, to be honest with you. And, uh, and that was because of mute records. I think they just kind of like, you know, how many times is this bomb going to go off? This, this, these renegade Soundwave guys, we was probably... Um, I don't think any, any people didn't really know what to do with renegade Soundwave. You know, it was kind of like, you know, there's a lot of head-scratching going on with it with regards to it. It was kind of like, you know, they didn't know how to... to you know, they, they just didn't know where to put us, I don't think. It was kind of... it was. It was strange, and I think because we were difficult and we were sort of, you know, we were kind of argumentative and kind of, you know, and we we kind of we had sort of a difference of opinion with most people, and we just couldn't help ourselves, you know. I mean, we'd, we'd sort of argue with ourselves, you know what I mean? If you left us in a room alone, you know, we'd end up arguing with ourselves. So yes. <laughs> I think it was sort of, um, you know, it kind of, it was kind of visible as well. And it was just, I think it was just sort of hard work, too much like hard work for everybody. And, uh, and, and, you know, people were kind of, I don't know, yeah, it was, it was um, I think it was, it was, we confused everybody. I don't think, you know, I don't think people knew what, you know, what um, category to put us in. It was kind of, it was kind of, um, it was a difficult one for, for people to sort of understand and, um, and there was a bit of chaos going on and probably drugs and, and you know, and lunacy and... Yes. 
you know, and all that sort of stuff. It's, but, a, it's such a shame because you had that kind of, yeah. I mean, the this was kind of the Britpop period and, and yeah. you know, the John Major years, and there was quite a lot of dance stuff coming in, so it's amazing that yeah. you didn't quite sort of no. navigate a, a sort of chapter for yourselves. No, no. Um, no, I think if you kind of, um, you know, it's an interesting thing if you, the, the catalogue, the Renegade Soundwave catalogue, if you kind of delve into it, you know, you'll find something that you, you didn't expect to find. It might take you to, to a place of what you wasn't expecting to go. But it was, there was quite a lot going on, you know, and it's sort of, um, that's, it's, it's kind of interesting. And, and and the tracks still sound good to me. I mean, you know, I don't play them very frequently, but, you know, mm. I, 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 there was one that came up um, probably a couple of months ago. It was called Manphibian. And I'd kind of not played it for years, and I don't—I can't remember. I just sort of fell into to hearing it somewhere. Oh, this is really interesting. I sort of forgotten all about this track. It was just kind of like a like when we started out with this conversation. It was like a B-side, yes, of, of Thunder, and uh, one of the one of the tracks on on, on the B-side to Thunder. And uh, I thought, hmm. you know, it's got some quirky voices on it. You know, it's uh, and uh, I quite enjoyed listening to it. And I have to, you know, I wasn't for it's very unusual track, and um, but you know there's some there's some good mixes there. You know there's some great there's some sort of interesting little tangents that you can go on if you if you walk down walk, you know walk down the Renegade Soundwave Road. You, you you you're not quite sure where you're going to end up. You know. No, and then I mean, what do you once that band has passed and you've been sort of you, you've probably been in music now for nearly 15 years what what how do you navigate the next bit do you stay in a musical capacity or do you move on again um it depends who kind of like knocks on your door for me i mean i did some records with um kevin mooney i did a couple of albums with him um which i i really like which were kind of um quite raw but um Again, uh, I did one with a guy called Ramel Z. Have you ever heard of him? No. Like a artist. Is, um, he's, on, he's on this, um, I did this thing called the Lavender Pill Mob. Oh, yes. And um, he shows up, and I love that track. It's called Ramel. And he's kind of, he, he's, um, when, when I was in, in in this kind of New York situation with Carl, and Ramel Z was kind of like, he, he's, um, Somebody that we both respected. He had an, an, an art display, um, a, a gallery, and um, we went along hoping to meet him because we was kind of fascinated by him. And um, but we did sort of um, see all of his artwork, and he's kind of like, "Wow!" If you check him out, Ram LZ, it's quite an interesting character, and he's um, he's getting a bit of respect now. I mean, he's um, you know. He's, if you went and tried to buy one of these pieces of art, you know, you pay sort of hundreds of thousands of dollars. For right. What what band was he in? Did you say? He's, he's, he's not. He he is. He's, he's kind of like a rapper. A uh, rapper and a, 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 a sort of underground. He was an underground graffiti artist, and he had, used to hang out with like Basquet and and um, you know all the kind of early guys that used to go. You know, at a time when they used to go and paint the um, you know the subway trains. Yes. And, uh, that's where he started. So was he part of that Keith Herring gang in New York, or was that? He would have been. He would have been. Yeah, he would have been in that. Yeah, Keith Herring would have known who he was. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Sure. So just. Yeah, just what was his name again? Just I know. Sorry, I'm writing this. Ram L Z. 
R A double M E double L Z double E. I think is how you spell it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'll, I will check that out. Actually, yes. Has it come up? Yeah, it has actually. I've just found him. That's it. Right. And he's still. He, no, he's not alive anymore. Unfortunately, no, he died didn't he? two thousand and ten. Uh, yeah, very interesting character. Very, very, very interesting character. Oh dear, yes, God dear. And, uh, what he done? Because Kevin, Kevin was in um, Kevin, I think, was in Miami, and he did a. Tra- he was in the studio in Miami, and I think it was affiliated to Ireland. Ireland put him in in a studio, and next door, it's quite interesting. This next door was Grace Jones. And Grace Jones, has, uh, I think I, I, I think she may have done a track, or done a, a vocal on, on one of their tracks. And then years later, Kev, and, and, and this is where the Ramel recording was also done. So what they, what the, this record never got released. So what we did is we, we, we lifted the, the vocal from the track and put it to, 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 to one of our tracks. But what also happened was... Um, Grace Jones came into the studio and and and, and did a vocal for, for one of their tracks, and then years later, Kevin Kevin was in Kevin now lives in Berlin. Strangely enough, he was um, at a friend's place and he said, "Oh, have you, you know the guy said, oh, have you you heard the new Grace Jones album called Hurricane?'" And he went, "Oh, I like Grace Jones. Put it on." So he's put it on and he's listened to it. And he said, "Hold on, that's my track." And she recorded this track, and it was his track, but hadn't credited, hadn't credited him and him and his then partner Leslie. I don't know if you know Leslie Weiner's stuff. No. No, you should check her out as well. I will. Leslie uh, Leslie Weiner, and um, so he spoke to Leslie, and her, I think it's her brother, is kind of like um, you know, like a high high powered kind of lawyer. And he got onto it, and then it was when when the album eventually they got they got they got paid for it basically. Basically, she tried to. She, I think she just tried. To, maybe she hadn't tried to steal it, or maybe she was just negligent. Other people at the record company were, were negligent, but eventually it came. Um, and I think they got credited when it was repressed. So it was just the same story that that. that uh, I mean, it's probably about 20 years later when she released this track. But you, this is music, isn't it? The music industry. You never know what's, you know, you never know when your bus is going to show up. No, this is so, true. Um, this is so, such a strange story, isn't it? Yeah. Yes, and that's, that's where the Ram LZ and, and the Grace Jones thing came out of this same session for Island Records in Miami, which which I don't think anything was ever released from the session, from, 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 from to, to, to Island Records. But, but the, the consequences of that was, was that Grace Jones did a track from, from that session. And we eventually went to the Ranel Zivo for and put it onto, uh, onto our own track, you know, maybe again 20 years after they'd done the initial um, recording with Ranel Z in Miami. Um, Blimey, it all makes sense. And then uh, yeah. big, so big audio dynamite. That was, um, is cele- he's celebrated in that song "Come On Every Beatbox," which I can remember now yeah, from. Right, right. Yes. It's a track called Beatbop. Beatbop. Yeah. Which is that was of... his. Yeah. How interesting. So then, so which so is the, the artwork is. is um, 
the artwork is the guy um, who I just previously mentioned, the graffiti, um, Basco. Basco, yes. He did the artwork to, to, the, to the cover for, for the Ram LZ record. Fantastic. Which is worth oh, a fortune. Which is, if, you, if, you've got, if you've got an original copy, I think it's worth a fortune. Yes, I would imagine it's going to be quite expensive. So then, I mean, have you then just been sort of going from these kind of projects to projects after? Yeah, uh, yeah. Nobody loves me anymore. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, I, I, did a, I did a nice... Um, I was wondering if you heard my... Um, I, I did a, a re-recording of Cocaine Sex. Um, yeah. I, did that, I did that about '97. I got I got a little label that I found. You know, I just if um if I've got some stuff that I I, I think needs to be released, so that I, I release it on my own sort of label. So, so you this is a label you started with Kevin Mooney. Yeah, well, yeah, Kevin got later involved. Yeah, but I, I started it before Kevin got involved. To be honest with you, but Kevin Kevin later got involved. But that's on Wikipedia, isn't it? But. Uh, that, those Wikipedia stories aren't sort of um, aren't always sort of completely on the on on focus kind of thing. No, there's they're a bit random, but it's yeah, that's how it stays. But yeah, so but, yeah, but, but Kevin later got involved. But um, I started the label kind of. Um, I did a track. Do you, do you know Diff Charles? Which Four one? Diff Charles, a four AD band. No. Uh, you should check them out. They sort of like did that. Um, Instrumentals, two great um, EPs they did in the eighties. You'd like them actually. They're they're really you should check them out. Diff Jazz. And just um, say that again. Diff Jazz. Diff Jazz. Yeah. D I F J U Z. Two words. Two words. Yes. Diff Jazz. Well, my God, that's that's another. That's I know. I need to make so many notes on this, don't I? Well, yeah, yeah. Well, that's that's good. That's good. It's um, it's good research, and and um, I don't recommend that many things, to be honest with you. It's just that we're delving into sort of our our own personal history. I did a track with the guy from Diff Jazz. Um, I can't think what year that was. Which um, yes, it's quite cinematic. Um, that I released on my label. Um, called the Tranquil Trucking Company. My God, that reminds me. There was a there was a band in East Anglia in the seventies called the Global Village Trucking Company. So, right, wow, okay. So, um, they were kind of a hippie community band, a commune band. I mean, they just had a kind of a box set released on Cherry Red Records, so they were on Virgin. I think it was it was all right, but it was very much of its time. If you listen to the Global Trucking, but you've got a tranquil company. <laughs> trucking company, trucking. yeah. Tranquil. I just did a one, and I just did one twelve-inch with the with the guy from from Diff Jazz called Dave Curtis, and he's a very good musician. That he's he's um, you know, he doesn't um, doesn't go out in the light very much. To be honest with you, he's um, sort of under, under, underground, underground. He sounds like a womble. Um, yeah, well, he should he should be um, yeah he should be sort of more subterranean than he probably is. But he's um, occasionally I, I had to work hard to get him to, to to get him get well to get it finished because he's yes. very, um, but he's done some. He was married to little Annie. Do you know little Annie? Yeah, I think is this the woman who was on Crass Records once and um, and think, on You yeah. Sound? I think yeah yeah. Yeah, he's got connections. I think it was it Mother's Pride. It might have been because I did an interview with her once, and um, why? She that was quite weird. 
she was quite wheezy. Was she? Right, okay. Because I'm asthmatic, I thought, my God, you you sound even worse than I do. Yeah, so, um, yeah, she is, I guess. That's a good way of describing her. Yeah, I haven't, I haven't seen her first. She's in New York, isn't she? Yeah, I think she's still doing her little bits, but she... Yeah, she, she does. She's kind of... Um, yeah, she's, she'll show up when you're, when, when you're least expecting her. <laughs> it's kind of like, you know, she's kind of here, there and everywhere, Annie. Yeah. But, um, Amazing. She was married to, to, to Dave Curtis from Biff Jazz. So right. Musical history there as well. I'm sure he's probably shown up on some of her records. Yes. God, that's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It is quite interesting. Yeah. London she's Pride. London Pride. Yeah. So Alan Curtis, who was Alan in that Curtis. band. Yeah, Alan and Dave, they're brothers. But I, I didn't do that. I didn't. Um, the tranquil trucking is just with Dave. It's not nothing to do with Alan. And right. the guy, um, Gary Bromley and um, Richie Thomas. Richie Thomas um, will show up on, in, in various other forms as well. Yeah, amazing, really. So what does that mean? What, what are you then sort of planning, I mean, for the next kind of yeah, couple of years? Have you got any musical? Um, what I'm currently doing is I've got all the... Um, all the tracks from this documentary that's been made for Rima Rima, which um, I just got sort of two days ago, which I'm synchronising just to find a working format, a running order for them. And I'm um, doing... Um, I've, done, I've got also got some live recordings that I did just before the pandemic kicked in, which um, I, I got some really good musicians together in a studio and we kind of jammed out some stuff. It's a little bit like Can. Right. Um, and I've got this thing. Um, I said that I'd play um, play live with Nick as this Rima Rima tribute um, to to introduce the documentary for the premiere in Italy in Turin, which is February. So that's that's enough for me for the time being. So that's um, yes. that will wrap up pretty much the Rima Rima story. I can't. It's got nowhere else to go, that one. <laughs> and, but still. And, you know, you know I can't believe the mileage I'm getting out of Rima Rima. No, absolutely. I mean, it is, um, it's going to be quite interesting how, um, I mean, it has had a lot of plays on Spotify, actually, Rima Rima stuff. So, um, so uh, it's definitely... You, 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 you listen to Spotify, David, uh... I do. It's a. It's a. It's. It, I. I remember sort of. Fi- sort of finding it a few decades. Well, a long time ago. And someone said, right. "Oh, you should check out Spotify." And it was. It was like God. I can't believe it's just this amazing library, and I can sort of yeah. just mess around. And and it was a little bit addictive, really, for the first couple of years. Right. Good. Okay. So, so do you not collect vinyl? Uh, have you got not got your own collection? Uh? I do. Ha- I still have my vinyl records, but I don't sort of. I I sort of find that um, I probably don't buy that much anymore. But no. you know, I still have um, little moments and stuff. Right, but yeah. it's quite expensive, really, isn't it? That's the one oh, thing. Yeah, it's um, yeah, it certainly is. 
Yeah. So, and I, yeah, I mean, I don't know. You, but they I don't are know. very tactile kind of objects, aren't they? Sort of. Well, I think it's interesting that vinyl came back, and I can understand why, because, like you said, they are very da- tactile. I can't imagine the CD ever coming back with any kind of nostalgia and fondness, because I've even sort of been tempted to buy records that I know that I wouldn't play on vinyl, but I just would love to own them and touch yeah. them. And yeah, uh, that does sound a bit odd, but... No, it's, it's not. Doesn't sound odd to me. <laughs> no, I just kind of you get all the credits, and uh, you know, it's all kind of like it's the the the, the print's not as small as it could be on a on a CD. Because I kind of like you know, even with your glasses on, it's hard to sort of to to read the the print on some of these the, the, on a CD. But on the vinyl, yes. just like okay, and it's just like it's almost like a perfect thing isn't it like a piece of vinyl sort of like how to store a bit of audio you know that's kind of like you know that's just that's um, um, made up yeah. with it yeah and it's kind of like you get a nice bit of artwork and uh you know you might get um you know a gatefold sleeve you, you know you might get an insert you know it's just kind of wow okay well, this, you know, this is uh you know it's just i love it yeah, if, no, if you love the if you love the record as well, and it's got some, you know, it's got sort of like a memory attached to it. Totally. Well, I always I always remember when you get the vinyl record that that kind of day when you have to turn over and play side two after finding yourself just about sort of comfortable with side one. Yeah. Shall I play side one again? Just in case. (laughs) Yes, I know. But then but then there's always that irritating thing where you dislike one song and you'd have to try to get the needle and then try to skip it. I don't want to play track four on the uh, Yes. Maybe it'll grow on you, that one. You know, you don't know, do you? Sometimes. Like, say, for instance, Hunky Dory. I mean, you know, you could just I could just play that album sort of like continuously. For like the next hundred years. <laughs> yes. Well, it's the, it, it was it was the yeah. I suppose Ziggy was the album that I sort of just thought was yeah, such a masterpiece. Yeah. No, that's a good one for sure. So, yeah. did you? I mean, on that front, just curious. Did you yeah. watch the David Bowie Moon Age Daydream film that um, Morgan Brett made no, this I, year? I haven't seen. Is it good? I, I it's really it was really worth seeing in the cinema because the sound the wow. sound of it was awesome. But it's an impressionistic kind of take on a creative person. So it was it wasn't a documentary. It was actually just a kind of the vibe of an artist and how they got from the beginning to when he meets Aman, so his wow, wife. Okay. So okay. And then it kind of he he for various reasons stop it at that point. But it's interesting, you know, it's an interesting film. So it's definitely worth but you need to really see it or hear it right. loud because it's quite an awesome soundtrack. Yeah. So um that's my that's my word on the street. I mean if you could have whispered something to your like sixteen year old self starting out, is there anything in particular that you might have said, Oh yes, actually there is something I would have just told them. What about David Bowie? Uh, no, no, about your whole life. From what you've kind of experienced and the stuff that you've done, is there anything that you would have been like, you would have thought, oh, yeah, I would, I've learned something here. I'd love to have told my 16-year-old self that little bit of advice. I just, I'm more of a floater, I think, and they sort of like you're constantly picking up. I just think with regards to sort of musicians, I mean, you, you um you know, it's it's you meet some wonderful people. I mean, I'm not I'm not sort of enamoured with the kind of industry aspect of it. 
But a lot of the people that you meet are, 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 might have a similar sort of a, a, an outlook that you kind of have some understanding for, and you can get sort of lost in in sort of beautiful conversations and understandings about sort of um, different aspects of your own musical sort of career with them, and find sort of like little bridges that we can where where you're kind of like almost standing together. When you're at a certain sort of um, point in time, I think that's really something that's sort of one of the sort of hidden benefits from 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 doing music. But with regards to sort of like who you give it to and what is done with it, that's kind of like you know that can be a bit of a horror story. But some of the wonderful people involved are sort of I've done it myself. It's kind of like I've given up my life to to, to do music, and it's not. Um, you know, it's not a straight road and it's not an easy road and I wouldn't recommend it to anyone, to be perfectly honest. I just, as we spoke earlier, it's because of the sort of punk, the energy of punk, I felt that I might have something, you know, a role to play here. And but I was, I, you know, all these years later to sort of like to still be sort of active. But I still meet wonderful people that sort of, um, you know, in sim from similar sort of backgrounds with sort of similar energies as myself. And, and, and they've dedicated themselves to, to, to this thing called, you know, music, to, to create it. And, um, you know, and you sit and talk to some of these people from different parts of the planet, you know, and, and then they've got the same passion as yourself. And you think, well, and it brings, it brings you together, in, you know, to, in, in conversation. And then your conversation can, can, can expand to various other sort of um, things that are going on in our world. But... Um, that might be, that's kind of one of the most uh, stimulating things for me, the, some, of the, some of the wonderful characters and some of the, some of the wonderful gigs. And, um, you know, I, I went to see Charlie Rich. I, I, well, Charlie Rich was supporting Frank Sinatra at the Royal Albert Hall. And I thought, you know, I thought, I, didn't, I thought, you know, I know, I know a thing or two about drummers. I can't play drums. But I mean, you know, I've seen some great drummers. And then I saw Charlie Rich on, on the stage and I was like, Whoa, that guy, <laughs> that guy is something else, you know. And and, it's, and and the showmanship with it, it's just like wow. And Frank Sinatra, I mean, can you, you know, Frank Sinatra? This kind of like, at, at the time when I saw him, it was probably again, it was sort of like '82 or something, and uh, it was just completely fantastic. Yes, yeah. and it's kind of like a, a sort of, you know, at the end of his career, and um, you know, what a fucking repertoire. <laughs> yes. Hot, you know, it's just and um, and he just kind of he sucked all the energy out of that room, you know, out of the Albert Hall, and it was just, it was just him, you know. It's just like every every eye in the house was on Frank Sinatra, and it was just completely fantastic. And um, you know, so you do have some sort of magical, um, mystical moments with music, and you never know. Um, you know, you never know what what to expect. I know, like this is had a conversation. If you if you go if you if you do a little bit of research and you find yourself sort of like looking at some Ram LZ art tonight and some of his graffiti art or are listening to to, to, to to you know, yeah, he hasn't got a great big repertoire. But if you find yourself listening to, to, to that track he did track, I think it's called lipstick. Uh, and, and you know, and just checking that out and I think, you know, it takes you to somewhere. I'm happy with that. So that's my job done for the day. It's, it's, it's taking you somewhere 
that I think, you know, like in, in you know, maybe in the future we could have a, a conversation just about about Ram L Z, you know. So there's so yes. many like interesting little routes that you can take in music. So well, I think that's what I kind of miss about John Peel, really. I kind of trusted his kind of show, and then it was always so taking me to those kind of new places that were like, oh, that's interesting. So, um, yeah. oh, brilliant. Yeah, they don't make them like that anymore, do they? Not really. <laughs> I mean, if you, is there anyone that you'd recommend, like that's on the radio, DJ, that you'd kind of... The one person I have a little bit of a fondness for, and I find oh. him quite amusing, I like his kind of, I mean, you can see the tracks he plays, so you can sort of have a quick look, but Iggy Pop on, a, on, a, on Six course. Music, yes. Yes. He, does, he does throw in some quite yes. interesting stuff that I find that um, if yes. I see a name that um, is just, <laughs> I'm curious about, a bit like John Peel, I kind of quickly right. have a listen, and um, that's, yeah, that was good. Well, that's, that's, that's a good recommendation. I love Iggy. Love it. Yes, and yeah. um, what, a, he's, what a what a what a story that is! <laughs> wow. Well, he's still uh, with us, so um, it's yes. incredible, really. So, uh, yeah. When you think it was kind of like Bowie, um, Iggy, and Lou, and um, Iggy's Iggy's outlived them all. It's just, <laughs> you know what a what a crowd that is. I know yeah. that is quite something, isn't it? Really. So, yeah. uh, I, guys. I, Yes, uh, wow. Yeah, you've got me there, yeah. I did so, um, see the Idiot tour when that when the Idiot came out and uh, that with um, Bowie playing with him and that was a fantastic gig. My God, that's amazing. I've never met anybody. I've met people who played at Woodstock, but I never met anybody who saw that tour, so there you go. Yeah, and they, they, um, then I saw the Lust for Life tour and I actually met my ex-wife backstage at Iggy Pop during the recording of Soundclash. Fantastic. Um, this is another story. That is weird, yeah. I did an, an interview with... Oh, I've done an interview with both of the members of Hunt and Tony Sales, the brothers. Right. What are they like? Um, amazing. I, oh, yeah, I have to send you a video of, of okay. old Hunt, because Hunt, Hunt is quite something. And, yeah, Tony Tony's kind of being put together, or they've got together a band who are going to be touring next year in the UK, or oh, very soon, I suppose. I think they're doing Lust for Life, and um, he's going to be there. Wow. So, um, what, not with Iggy. Not with Iggy, but with no. a very weird lineup. So if you look at the lineup, it's like that's very strange. But Tony was nice. I mean, Tony was nice, and Hunt was just the most rock and roll old boy who lives in some shack in some place in America. So um, it, it's amazing they're they're still with us. So. Um, yeah. Yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. So God bless them. Yeah, God bless them. God, absolutely. God. Look, this has been amazing, Gary. I'll Thank let you. you. This has been fantastic. Thank you ever so much. This has been. Thank you for phoning. Yeah, no, for making contact. Um, no, yeah. I appreciate it. It's nice to have a little discussion. I enjoyed that. So thank yeah. you. Well, thank you. And um, I'll let you go and have tea now. But um, look, have a lovely midwinter and um, (laughs) look forward to more Rima Rima stuff. And I'll look forward to try and watch the film as well. And that, dear listener, is the end of the interview, as you probably gathered. But a massive thank you to Gary for giving me the time for that interview. And um, yes, there's more bits and pieces out there on the internet if you care to search. Anyway, this is... uh, the C86 Show, David East. So if you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram. Just do C86 Show. You will be able to 
find that. And also all these interviews have been archived, aren't you lucky? So you can find those on Spotify, iTunes and Podbean. It's true. Anyway, have a great week and stay safe. <laughs>